0: Well, good morning Salem family, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. You thought I was going to say Ephesians, didn't you? i said Ephesians 33 times in a row. I want you to turn to Matthew. We're still talking, we're still working through Ephesians, and today we actually end our our mini-series within our study of the book of Ephesians on the armor of God. Next week we will, Lord willing, um, finish our whole study of the book of Ephesians. And I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of grieving this coming to an end. I've loved this time as we've been able to study through the book of Ephesians. But um, a few weeks from now we're going to begin a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I'm excited about that. I believe it is The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. There's a series title right there. I just just came up with that. The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. Don't let me forget that, okay? Somebody, don't let me forget that. Um, but anyway, we're going to begin a series on the Sermon on the Mount here in a few weeks. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to be in a couple of moments, but before we get there, I want to, I want to take just some time to talk about spiritual warfare and And we've been talking about this idea of spiritual warfare as as we find it in Ephesians chapter 6. I want to teach for just a couple of moments about spiritual warfare itself before we get to the piece of armor that we're talking about today. Uh, Dr. David Jeremiah, in his book, The Spiritual Warfare Answer Book, says this, "...the biblical context for viewing all of life's events is called spiritual warfare, the age-old conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light." Biblically and practically speaking, we are in a spiritual war. The Christian spiritual enemy is not in uniform, and he doesn't meet us on an identifiable battlefield. He uses ruthless and unconventional tactics such as deceit, deflection, and disguise. The church of Jesus Christ needs to know its enemies and his strategies. Above all, Christians need to know how to gain victory over this enemy. You know, a lot of times we find Christians who, um, who maybe there's, there's two ends of the spectrum. There's the one end of the spectrum where a, a person believes that every single thing in life, whether good or bad, all of it has to do with spiritual warfare. Okay? There's the other end of the spectrum that says that, um, you know what, spiritual warfare, yeah, it's kind of out there, it's kind of not, I'm not really worried about it. You know, If I'm I'm going to be completely honest with you, I'm going to tell you that the end of the spectrum that that really kind of doubts spiritual warfare, doesn't really see it at all, that's the one that scares me the most. Because that means that that person has such a self-reliance, a reliance on themselves to such an extent that, you know what, I don't really have to lean into the Lord to take care of me or to lead me and guide me. I can take care of myself. And Satan isn't worried about that person because there's no need to be worried about that person. They're operating in their own power. They're not operating in God's power. And Satan knows without a doubt that if you are operating in God's power, that's the person you've got to watch out for. So the Apostle Paul, when he teaches us here in Ephesians chapter 6, is helping us understand this is a very real war that you were in. There is this, there is this, this cosmic battle that's taking place constantly. And even though we can't see it with our eyes, we sense it. We know that it's going on, and we feel the, the, the attacks of the enemy on a regular basis, especially when you are committed to following Jesus and to glorifying God in everything that you say and do. Um, several weeks ago, I came across a, a quote by J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican um, bishop in Liverpool back during the 1800s, and actually posted it to my Facebook page, and many of you saw that, commented on it, but I want to read it for us here um, today. He says, let me talk to you about true Christianity. There's a vast quantity of religion current in the world that is not genuine Christianity. It passes muster, it satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not good money. In other words, he's saying it's counterfeit. It's not the real thing, which was called Christianity 1,800 years ago. There are thousands of men and women who go to chapels and churches every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal baptismal register, Their records reckon Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife, of exertion, of conflict, of self-denial, of watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Let's consider these propositions. The saddest symptoms of the so-called Christians are the utter absence of anything like conflict or fight. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money, they go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or maybe twice a week. But the great spiritual warfare, its watchings and struggling, its, its agonies and anxieties, its battles and contests, of this they appear to know nothing at all. Do you find in your heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Are you conscious of two principles within you contending for the mastery? Do you feel anything of war in your inner self? Let's thank God for it. It's a good sign. It's strongly probably evidence of the great work of becoming like Christ. All true Christians are involved in a fight. A true Christian can be known as much by his inner warfare as by his inner peace. You know, it may seem like it's a crazy thing to praise and thank God for spiritual warfare. But you can praise and thank God for spiritual warfare. Because that means that you are doing something right. And that God is doing something in you. You're doing something right, and God is doing something in you. So I start this time off as we as we ready to finish up the armor of God, talking about this great spiritual battle that we're in. I talk I, I want to start this off just by simply saying, is there a spiritual battle? And if there is, are you thanking God for it? If there's not a spiritual battle going on in, in your life, in your context, and in, in your in your thoughts, Something's not right. And I would encourage you to go to the Lord and just say, God, what is it? What is it that is not right? And allow him to, to speak into your life through his word. And, and speaking of his word, that's where we're, that's where we're at today. Where we've talked about the, the belt of truth. We talked about the breastplate of righteousness. The, um, what was next? What was next? The shoes of peace. They were hiding down there. I couldn't see them. The shoes of peace. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. And today we get to talk about The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is what we find in Ephesians chapter 6. The the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And um, that's the phrase that is used there. It's the take up. This, the sword of the Spirit, it's whenever the, the occasion calls for it, pick it up so you're ready to, ready to fight with this sword of the Spirit. Now, I, I, wanna, I want you to look at the phrase that's on the, um, on the screen for you, and, and, and really we're going to break this down here for just a moment to help us understand what Paul's talking about, and then we're going to talk very practically about the sword. But um, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I'll be honest with you, up until recently when I really studied this, I was like, okay, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's something you say but you don't really internalize it. You don't really think about, okay, what does this really, really mean? So let's break this down to where we understand what this really means and how it fits together. First of all, the Word of God there is talking about whatever God says. Whatever God says. So His Word, the Bible, is what God says. That is the Word of God. It's what God has said. The Holy Spirit, or in this case of this verse, only the Spirit is used, the Word Spirit is used. It's the originator of God's Word. So here's a way to communicate this. Um, The Holy Spirit of God used people of God during biblical times to write down the Word of God through divine inspiration. The the Holy Spirit brought to mind what needed to be written down, and so these people wrote it down. So we have the Word of God, the Bible, as we have it today. So the Spirit is the originator of the Word of God. Now the power behind this word or this, this sword Is God himself anything that God says anything that comes out of his mouth anything that comes to us through his word here is powerful in fact uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that it is living and active and has the ability to cut through even to the core of who you are that's the power that is the word of God so when the, the Christian picks up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, they are picking up a deadly weapon. Do you know that? You own a deadly weapon if you're picking up the Word of God. But you've got to use this sword correctly in order for it to be effective. When those spiritual battles come, the way that you use the sword is going to help determine the outcome of the battle. Now, as we approach this topic today of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, what better place to go than to God's Word to figure out how to use it? And who better to teach us than Jesus himself? So that's why you're in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to learn how to use the Spirit, the sword, uh, excuse me, the sword, which is the Word of God, okay? Matthew chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. So read along with me as I read. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. All right, let's pause here. We're about to get read verse 10, okay? But I want you to read verse 10 out loud along with me. Here we go. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then we get to verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, in the spiritual battle that we see take place here between Satan and Jesus, Satan and Jesus, there's three specific temptations that Satan uses to fight here, okay? First of all, there's the temptation to be satisfied in earthly things alone. He tells Jesus, take these stones and turn them into bread. Uh, number two, there's a the temptation to define identity based on circumstances rather than on God's promises. That's the, that's the temptation to look at the circumstances around us rather than focusing on God's promises. And then number three, there's a the temptation to compromise integrity to gain power. Compromise integrity to gain power. Satan said, hey, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all of this stuff. Now, I'm not going to dive deep into these specific temptations today because my goal is to help us understand how to fight. Okay? I would love to come back to this at some point. Maybe we'll come back to this at some point. We'll talk about very specifically the temptations themselves. But my goal today is to simply remind us of the way that Satan works and the way that Jesus defeated Satan in this battle. Now, these temptations that you see up here are really, really similar to the temptations that we often face today. Um, now, it may, it may look a little bit different. I'm pretty sure that you're not going to find yourself up on top of a mountain with Satan telling you, hey, throw yourself off this mountain, okay? Um, it's probably not going to look like that. But it is still very, very similar to the way that Satan works. And here's why. It's because Satan knows what buttons to push. And Satan knows where to go to try to get you to fall. And it's because Satan knows how to fight when you are vulnerable, We'll talk about that idea, I'll talk about it right now. Let's do that right now. Jesus has just spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. You ever spent 40 days and 40 nights without food? I have a hard time going one day without food, okay? But just imagine doing it for 40 days and think about the weakness that would have been a part of Jesus' physical body. I mean, he is just worn down. He is tired. And that is the moment that Satan comes and he attacks Jesus. Satan attacks most often when we are vulnerable. It's that point of weakness where he knows, you know what, this person is weak, they are vulnerable, and so he pounces. And if if Satan worked that way with Jesus, what makes us think that he'll work any differently with us? He's gonna seek out our most vulnerable moments and choose that time to attack. So let me ask just very very specifically for you as an individual, okay? What is your most vulnerable moments? What is your most vulnerable moments? And and maybe for you it's when you're filled with anxiety. Or maybe it's when you're tired or when you feel alone. Those are your vulnerable moments. For other people, the vulnerable moment is at the the end of a great victory. They have just won some kind of, maybe it's a business deal, maybe it's a great spiritual victory, maybe it's something else where you're just super excited, okay? And that is your most vulnerable moment, because Satan knows you're up on that pedestal, you're up on that mountaintop, and he knows that he can come and knock you down right there. What are your vulnerable moments? I hope that you can think ahead of time, what is my vulnerable moment, so you know when that moment comes, I am susceptible to temptation, to attack from Satan. Now. I look at the the, the temptations that are up there on that screen, and I think, man, Satan really did have a strategy. He had a a very specific plan of attack. Satan is trying to get Jesus to prove to the world that he really was the son of God, but he was trying to get him to do it apart from God's way of doing it. God had a plan for Jesus. God had something he wanted Jesus to do, to come to this earth, right, to live the life that we were supposed to live, to die the death that we deserve to die to be raised from the dead, like we talked about earlier, to spend all this time teaching and all this time pointing to the fact that he was the son of God. And what Satan's trying to get him to do is say, you know what, there's an easier way than the way that God has for you. You just do it my way and you don't have to worry about all of that other stuff. You don't have to worry about the betrayal of your friends. You don't have to worry about the the, the rejection of the masses. You don't have to worry about the torturous death that you're going to die if you do it my way. That is in essence what Satan's trying to get Jesus to do. He's trying to get Jesus to take the easy way out. Could those stones have turned to bread? Yeah, they could have. Could angels have saved Jesus if he had jumped off the temple? Yeah, they could have. Could Jesus have received all the kingdoms of the earth and the the glory that comes with them if he had worshiped Satan? Yeah, he could have. They were Satan's to give. All of those things could have taken place and spared Jesus the anguish of the next three years. But here's the deal. They were not God's will. They were not God's will. And what was more important to Jesus than comfort and the easy way out was obeying God's will. So, what does Jesus do? He pulls out his secret weapon. He pulls out the secret weapon of the Word of God. And every single blow that Satan brought down against Jesus, he countered with one of his own, not in his own physical strength, because remember, Jesus' physical strength was gone but he countered in the strength that was inherent to the word of God. Satan fought dirty, but Jesus fought victoriously. Satan fought dirty, but Jesus fought victoriously. And listen to me, Satan is going to fight you dirty. He is going to fight you dirty. You think he doesn't know the buttons to push? You think he doesn't know that when you're alone, you tend to go here? You think he doesn't know the anxiety that fills you and, and, that, and that draws you into making decisions that are not wise? He knows those things. He's going to fight dirty. But you can fight victoriously. And we're going to talk about how here in just a moment. Before we, before we get to talking about how to fight victoriously, I want to, I want to show you an example of losing a spiritual battle from God's Word. Take your Bibles and go over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. So we've seen this great example of how Jesus counters Satan's attack with the Word of God. Now we're going to look at an example of a great spiritual failure. Genesis chapter 2, first book of the Bible, second chapter in the book. We're going to start looking at verse 15. Here's what we read. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now jump down to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees of the of the fruit of the trees in the garden but God said you shall not eat of the fruit that is of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die But the serpent said to the woman you shall not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You know, there's a really big difference between the way that Jesus uh, fights here and the way that Adam and Eve fought. There's a really big difference. The first difference is that Jesus fought passionately. Passionately, and Adam and Eve fought passively. They fought passively. Jesus was ready with strong answers. He was ready with the Word of God. He had God's Word hidden in his mind, so when Satan tempted, he was ready to come back with Scripture. Adam and Eve lacked that, that convictional belief that what God had said was true. And when you really boil it all down, when temptation from the enemy comes, Adam and Eve failed because they didn't believe what God had said. They really truly didn't believe what God had said. They didn't believe the Word of God. Now listen, when you are fighting the enemy, you've got two options, okay? You can ignore the Word of God and ignore and say that that what God has said isn't really true. Or you can use the Word of God. Jesus used the Word of God. Adam and Eve doubted the Word of God. And I'm not just talking about knowing a, a kind of a surface level understanding of the Bible. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about diving deep into God's Word. I want you to think with me here for just a moment about a butterfly, okay? A butterfly. We've got a picture of a nice, beautiful butterfly there on the screen for you. A butterfly, when it, when it, when it goes to a flower, all right, it flies down onto the flower. It stays for a few seconds. It doesn't really do anything except sit there on the flower. It probably thinks, look how beautiful this flower is. I'll just add to its beauty by being right here myself, Okay? Then it goes on to another flower, and and another flower, and another flower. It never really does anything with the flower. But then you think about a botanist. Okay, so you got the flower, the butterfly, then you got the botanist. The botanist, you can just imagine him walking up with his notebook and his pen and, and his magnifying glass, and he sits there for hours studying this flower, studying all the intricate parts of it, taking notes in his notebook, and there comes a point in which he closes up his notebook and he walks away from the flower. He never really interacted with the flower at all. He just studied the flower the entire time. But then there's the honeybee. There's the honeybee. You know what the honeybee does? The honeybee flies to the flower completely empty. And he drinks deeply of the nectar in that flower. And he leaves full. The honeybee comes empty and he leaves full. So when I talk to you about knowing God's word and understanding God's word, using God's word, I'm not talking about being a butterfly. I'm not talking about being a botanist. I'm talking about being a honeybee. Where you come to God's word and you dive deep and you understand, you know what, I am nothing, but I know that I can find anything that I need in God's word. I can know without a doubt who I am in Christ because of God's word. I can know without a doubt how I'm I'm to respond in this circumstance because I'm diving deep into God's word. I am experiencing God himself because I'm diving into his word. Do you think that when Jesus was tempted by Satan, do you think he was the butterfly? No. Do you think he was even the botanist who had studied God's word and, and knew a whole lot about God's word but had no relationship with God's word? No. I think Jesus was the honeybee. You know what, here's what's gonna happen in in life. You're gonna gonna be tempted by Satan. The spiritual battle is gonna come and you're gonna have a choice. Am I gonna be Adam and Eve and just kind of passively fight and not fully dive into God's word and use God's word in this battle or am I gonna fight like Jesus passionately? You know, fighting like Jesus passionately looks like this. It means that you use God's word in the middle of that difficult, difficult time and you recall God's word, and you recall scripture that you've already soaked yourself in, and you're gonna come out victorious. So you're praying prayers like, God, I know that you are good, and your mercies endure forever. You're praying, I don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You're praying prayers like, I know that I'm not left alone and that my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I'm telling myself, Kivit, there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Praying prayers like, Kivit, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he's going he's to flee from you. He's going to run from you. If anyone is in Christ, what is he? He is a new creation. So because I'm in Christ, I am a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Oh, God, help me be new. Kivit, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Hey, hey, Kivit, set your mind on things that are above, not on things below. Put to death what is earthly in you. And then with David in Psalm 51, oh God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Your word have I hid in my heart. Why? So I may not sin against you. How are you fighting? Are you fighting with convictional belief that what God says is true, or are you trying to fight in your own strength? Convictional belief that God is true, that his word is true, that it is there to help you fight, will lead you to victory. Reliance on yourself to simply be good enough, or strong enough, or smart enough, or brave enough, Reliance on yourself to be those things is going to lead you nowhere but defeat. I'll close with this story. Um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote this about Martin Luther. He said, Luther was held in darkness by the devil, though he was a monk. He was trying to save himself by his works. He was fasting, sweating, he was praying, and yet he was miserable and unhappy and in bondage. Superstitious Roman Catholic teaching held him captive. But he was delivered by the word of Scripture that says, the just shall live by faith. From that moment, he began to understand this word, this Scripture, as he had never understood it before. And the better he understood it, the more he saw the errors taught by Rome. He saw the error of her practice and so became more intent in the reformation of the church. He proceeded to do all in terms of exposition to the Scriptures. The great doctors of the Roman church stood against him. He sometimes had to stand alone and meet them in close combat and invariably took his stand on the Scripture. He maintained that the church is not above the Scriptures. The standard by which you judge even the church, he said, is the Scripture. And though he was one man at first standing alone, he was able to fight the papal system and 12 centuries of tradition. He did so, how? By taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know what, there's a good chance that you're not going to go toe-to-toe with a massive, massive force like Martin Luther did. But today or tomorrow or sometime this week, you will go toe-to-toe as a Christian with Satan in some way. How are you going to fight? How are you going to fight? Are you going to fight passively? Uh, I'm not really sure that God's word is really that true. are you going to fight with God's word? Knowing with a convictional belief that this is true. How are you going to fight? Father, help us to fight in such a way that honors you. such a way that, that, Lord, we have immersed ourselves in scripture. We know your word. So when Satan comes, just like Jesus, we can go toe to toe with him. And come out victorious because we know your word. Help us to be honeybees, not butterflies or botanists. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, Father, I pray that they come into that beautiful relationship that is for all of eternity. That Father redeems them from their past of sin and that, Lord, calls them into something that is nothing short of incredible. Father, thank you for our time and your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.